Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn, and joining me today from our studios in Bushwick. Annie Fell, senior editor. Hey, hey, thanks for joining us on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I'm sorry about the sound of my voice today. I am at the tail end of a man cold. I have been laid out for the last few days, but I am valiantly striving to bring you your weekly show. Today's episode is one from The Vault. This is a live talk that we did at Rough Trade NYC last year. It was curated by Lauren McGrath, a then Talkhouse intern who you now may know from the New York comedy scene. Lauren's a big fan of the New Jersey band Happy Fits and happened to know that vocalist cellist Calvin Langman was a huge fan of Shannon and the Clams. When Shannon and the band came through town, Lauren paired Shannon and Calvin for a fans-only live event. With Shannon and the Clams about to hit the road for a long tour, opening for the Black Keys, we thought it was the perfect time to share this fun episode. Now, I first heard of Shannon through her work with Seth Bogart of Hunks and His Punks. Shouts. One of my favorite bands. So good. These days, Shannon is more known for her solo work and her work as the singer and bassist of the Oakland-based girl group-esque garage band Shannon and the Clams. Now, Annie, I'm also a huge fan of Hunks and His Punks, although I didn't realize at first that Shannon was the bassist in that group. I first heard of Shannon the Clams through their super raw track, Warlock in the Woods. That was back in 2009. And it's been really cool to hear how the band's evolved since. They've definitely gotten away from sounding like they recorded the record on a super clipped Walkman. And uh, and they've learned how to work in the studio. Both sounds very cool. And of course, I really enjoyed last year's record that was produced by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. That was called Onion. Annie, I think you ran a review of that when it first came out. Yeah, we ran a review written by Allison Wolf of Bramobile. Nice. Last year, we also premiered Shannon's debut solo record, Shannon in Nashville, with a write-up by Seth Bogart. That record was also awesome. And it's just so insane that Shannon and Dan Auerbach dropped two records together in the same year. So amazing. Annie, let's check out a track from Shannon and the Clams record, Onion. Here's their single, The Boy. Love it. So great. So great. You know who else thinks it's great? Calvin Langman. Calvin, as mentioned, is the cellist and one of the vocalists in Happy Fits. And as you'll hear in this talk, he is just a huge fan of everything Shannon's done. Now, Happy Fits had an unlikely start. Their 2016 EP, Awfully Appealing, hit the top five of Spotify's viral USA chart. So imagine a new band releases their very first track and all of a sudden has millions of streams. It's the kind of success story that could only happen in the age of streaming and playlists. And it's so fascinating to hear in this talk how the Happy Fits dealt with their early success. In 2018, they released their first LP, Concentrate. Let's listen to a track from that album, Best Tears. Try your best, just like your father did. Success is mental. Please show us and tell. 
Calvin had a lot of questions for Shannon, and throughout this talk, she takes us from before she'd started playing music all the way up to her latest records. They also talk about that time Shannon met Andre 3000. The Happy Fits, pretty atypical relationship with DIY scenes and venues. And Shannon's job working at a mental institution for the criminally insane. And who would have guessed that working there is part of a family tradition? Should we roll a tape? Let's roll it. I am a huge fan. I've been listening to you guys since I think 2012 is when I jumped on the train. And uh, Dreams in the Rat House was like the first vinyl I ever bought. Well, like with cool. my own money. Yeah, I bought it from my girlfriend. She loves it. We listen to it all the time. I was just wondering, like my biggest question for y'all is that like from your first record, I Want to Go Home and then Till Now with Onion, like the songs are just so solid. And like they stayed with like just awesome melodies. And like, how do you keep that up? Like the really good songwriting. That's quite a question because it seems so simple, mm -hmm. but I, I feel like I don't know how to answer it. I think what makes us a good band is that it's something we naturally have. Me and Cody have a lot of good, I guess, charisma together, working together. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of like siblings, especially now that we've introduced Will and Nate to the band. Um, we're all really good at, at editing and, mm -hmm. you know, being prolific, working on a ton of stuff and then paring things down and really just like try not to put too much unnecessary stuff in there. And I, I think that like maintaining the honesty and being able to help each other like in really good zones and edit, I think that that's like a kind of a big part of it. And then naturally just, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think there's got to be more to it than just naturally being a good songwriter, but mm -hmm. maybe just loving good music <laughs> and like just, I don't know, keeping music going in your life that's not yours mm -hmm. too. Has uh, the writing process for y'all changed over the past 10 years? It has in a lot of ways. So the way it started was basically me alone mm -hmm. feeling so nervous and which is really weird to think about now. That's like, it's just me by myself, you know, mm -hmm. doing something I want to be doing. Why am I so freaked out? And then when Cody joined the band, mm -hmm. that was like the most nerve wracking thing. Cause then it's like, I taught myself how to sing and play at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of the band. So to be so vulnerable and embarrassed of what I'm doing in front of like a friend was really hard, but we just got used to it. So I'd go work on something like literally in a closet. We'd be in his room, especially with like first couple albums. We recorded them in Cody's bedroom and I'd go in the closet and I'd make sure I'd get the bass line down <laughs> and then I'd come out and I'd show it to him and I'd be like red faced and sweating. And, but eventually I got over that cause he's like my best friend and my, mm. you know, we constantly work together. It's like, I trust him. So we'd record little demos on our phone and send them to each other mm. and then build on top of them. And then eventually like now with this last album, when we were in the studio, Will and Nate started adding their ideas too, which is cool because it had always been like me and Cody did the songwriting and I orchestrate the backup vocals and we all come up with the percussion. So then to add two more beautiful minds to it, well, mm -hmm. and Dan really, he had some good ideas too, of course. Mm -hmm. It's just like more minds on this last album. Mm -hmm. So that was really different because that was like me and Cody showed them 
our demos that we'd recorded together. Like I went up to Seattle and him and I fucked around and recorded like 40 things or something. And then we paired him down and showed him to the band and then they added their ideas. Mm -hmm. And then we brought it to the studio and then Dan pared stuff down and added things and does that... I yeah. really went on for a long time. No, no, that's, that was great. <laughs> when you start writing a song, do you usually start with like an instrumental part or do you just have to have like an awesome chorus, like sleep talk, like already set and then build from there? Well, that changes. Um, most of my ideas I get while I'm driving alone. So it's like, I mean, you probably, do you tour? Yeah, we yeah. did our first tour, like first big tour. It was like, this March and we did two months until May. That's too long. <laughs> we had for me. We had like a it was like a hometown show like halfway through, so we gotta go home for like two days. Are you in your New York band? We say New York, we're from New Jersey, but we get a lot of hate when we say that. People what? just people just hate. Oh my New gosh, Jersey. you should have pride where you're from. <laughs> we when you say New York City, everyone knows what you're talking about. But when you're like, Yeah, we're from Hunterdon County, New Jersey, no one no one knows where that is. I feel like you should grasp onto that though, because that's been hard. We always get lumped in as San Francisco. And to me, San Francisco and Oakland are so crazy different mm -hmm. that I always have to be like, mm, excuse me, it's actually <laughs> Oakland. This one time I was playing a shitty little punk show in Atlanta with this band, the Togas. This is a little bit off track, but it's about San Francisco mm. and Oakland. It's a cover band with like Ty Siegel and Lance from Raining Sound and Philip from Strange Boys. We just did like 60s frat rock cover songs. It's pretty stupid, but really fun. And the last song we always played, Helter Skelter. And I basically just play <laughs> the open E for almost the entire yeah. song. And it's already a long song. And then Ty adds just adds an even longer guitar solo and has people crowd surf him around. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, I can't play this E forever. <laughs> so I put my bass down. I go up to the bar and I get a shot. And someone is poking me so hard in the shoulder. And I'm like, oh, hold on. And I'm I was having really bad anxiety on that tour for whatever reason. I take the shot. I go back up. I finish the song. And then at the end, I go back to the bar and the same poker comes up and he's poking me. <laughs> and I turn around and I'm like, what do you want? And it's Andre 3000. And I was like so starstruck and embarrassed and so angry at myself. You know, I don't know. And I couldn't get over it. And I was like, what do you want? Are you waiting for Ty? And he's like, no, I want to talk to you. I was like, me? Why? <laughs> and he's like, I just, I don't know. Your voice is amazing. And like, you know, I, I asked around inside the bar about you. Is your name, your name's Shannon, right? And I was like, you asked um, people about me and my, my name? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. Your name, is your name Shannon? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah. And I heard you're from San, from Frisco. <laughs> and I was, I was just like weird, like went into this like Dwight Schrute brain. And I was like, um, at San Francisco. And I'm actually, I live in Oakland. And he was like, you know, he just sighed because he's trying to be cool with me and I'm not letting yeah. him because I'm so starstruck. And he's like, yeah, it's like the same. It's like t 10 minutes away, right? And I was like, yeah, you're right. Sorry. And then I did more embarrassing things, but I don't have to talk more about that. <laughs> Do you find that Oakland's influence like all your, your music? I think in a lot of ways it's completely supported what I did. I come from actually Napa County, which is like a famous wine region, mm -hmm. but it's really like, when I was growing up, it was podunk. I lived in the middle of nowhere, like on a quasi farm. There's no punk scene there. It was all just like gigantic jinkos and chain wallets and big poofy skater shoes. 
and uh, like tribal tattoos and then the Hicks and the Jocks. Like that's kind of all there was. And definitely had never seen another woman or kid, like female child uh, <laughs> playing music yeah. ever. So I just never thought it would be something I would do. And then I first moved to Oakland to go to college for illustration. Anyway, I got real depressed. And for some reason, I noticed my bass that I was given to me in high school when I was 15. And my boyfriend at the time who gave it to me, I was kind of like, in my head, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? What? I didn't even know if it was a bass or a guitar. I didn't even know. <laughs> and which is so funny now. And, um, but anyway, it was 10 years later that I was in a dark place and I noticed the bass and I just like had this urge to mess around with it. And I wrote a song like right there. Mm -hmm. And I think how I'm coming back to the Oakland part of things is I was so supported when I first started doing open mics. And I think that Oakland is really good in that the like underground DIY punk scene there is like so open to any freak trying any freaky thing. And it doesn't matter if you're good at your instrument and it doesn't matter if you're a good singer and it doesn't, it's just the fact that you're trying and you're like, here's me, this is what I'm doing. You know, I mm -hmm. just think that it has a really unique support system there. And if I didn't have that, mm -hmm. like that couldn't have happened to me in Napa. Like I, I did play a couple open mics and my friends came, but it's like, I couldn't have, couldn't have come this far. I think if I just stayed there, mm -hmm. you know, the first few albums you said you recorded just in like someone's bedroom. Cody, or, the guitar player, yeah. the man. Yeah. Why did you guys decide to switch over to the studio? I mean, I, lo I love the studio sound, but your records already sounded like so good. And so there was like, just like this really nice DIY quality to it. Yeah. Not that I lost that at all, but. Well, thank you. I, and I know, I know what you're saying. Basically, we didn't think this band would go anywhere. And now it's been like 10 years and it's still going and it's going well, which mm -hmm. is crazy. Um, very proud of that. But, um, so we were like, yeah, let's, we actually recorded at this punk house called Telegraph Beach for I Want to Go Home. Mm -hmm. And it was in this other guy's bedroom. And then the second album we did all in Cody's bedroom and the third album. And I, it was getting to a point where like, it was just started off as just like super thrashy punk. We actually recorded to tape the first time. Simple. You mm -hmm. know, what whatever gear we could get you know, whatever console we could borrow from the dude down the street. You know, that's like whatever we could get to, we mm -hmm. would use. And, you know, for percussive things, like we, our minds didn't think like, we need to go buy this and that. And we had no money. So mm -hmm. it's like, we would use whatever was in the house, you know, mm -hmm. and borrow the, a different snare from someone else in the house, you know, things like that. And then as we were like, I think becoming more, like assertive and comfortable. I think I'm talking about myself. Cody is the most comfortable person I know. <laughs> but um, as I became more like, oh, I'm a songwriter. I'm writing songs. And feeling more comfortable recording, I, I think that we just started to have bigger ideas. Bigger ideas that exceeded the gear we could get to. Mm -hmm. So when we did Gone by the Dawn, we were like, how are we going to, 
like achieve this sound? Like how, you know, like we mm -hmm. needed all a bunch of stuff in one place. So someone said, you guys should check out Tiny Telephone. And uh, we investigated and the people that ran it were really cool. So it was cool to be in a room and just have mm -hmm. access to like the biggest kick drum you've ever seen, if you want. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, we got to experiment more with different kinds of percussion. And um, they had like every kind of shaker you could think of. Mm -hmm. And it was really neat. We're all creative people. Like me and Medi Cody met at art school. So it's like, you know, to have access to more things was fun. Because like you put us in the bedroom, we used every single thing that we could make, make music in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And then you put us in a studio, we'll try everything in there. Mm -hmm. And then when we got the invitation to go to Nashville and record in dance studio, it's like, Okay, well, he has even more stuff. Yeah. And he has some crazy stuff. <laughs> and there's one secret instrument in there that I'm not even allowed to tell you what it is, but I'd never heard of it before and it was insane and it's all over the album. I, so um, I sh why, do, why did I do that? Why did I just do that to you? <laughs> anyway, but there's um, like tubular bells and a harpsichord and like stuff that I didn't even know I'd ever Mm -hmm. see in person or didn't know what I was looking at. Yeah. Do you think working with Dan because he's such like an expert like is going to change the next few albums or like how you're going to write and work in the future? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, everyone you encounter and spend time with shapes things mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Have there been any artists you've met on the road that you've just like fallen in love with and like they've had like a big impact on you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All the time. Do you know that band Paint Fumes? No, I don't They're know. They're from North Carolina. It's just like super solid, well-written, mm -hmm. like psych punk, mm -hmm. psych garage punk. There was this artist that actually way back in the MySpace days, we both made it onto this weird Italian skate comp CD and that someone had just like burned and it was from Italy. And the only other band I liked on there was this band called... Charlie Majira and he lived in Israel. So we started like writing letters back and forth to each other and sending each other packages just because it's like you could just hear all his influences and hear what he did with them, you know, mm -hmm. and put him inserted a, himself into the music too. And I just felt like there was a really strong kinship musically. So we wrote to each other back and forth for years and sent packages. And then he eventually moved to Berlin and then to the States. And unfortunately he passed away, mm -hmm. but he is like one of my favorite musicians that I've like encountered and kind of can't believe I ever got, you should look him up. He's okay. amazing, but just feel lucky to have ever encountered him. And mm -hmm. you said really that special. Y'all weren't expecting for the band to take off and you've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> now you're like playing Panorama Festival and selling out Rough Trade. Was there like a point or like something that happened that y'all were just like, oh, like we made it? Or are you still waking up every day and it's a hustle? Both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. I still feel like, you know, like Country Mouse and City Mouse, I still feel like, oh my God, I get to do that? <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> you know, uh, and this is my job now. I mean, I also, I have a side hustle of selling my yeah. art prints and stuff, yeah. but. What was your job before the band? I've had nothing but the strangest jobs. My longest job, well, I was a jeweler right after school uh, for this really cool disabled lady. I was like a jeweler for 
several years. But before that, I worked in a mental institution for the criminally insane. Whoa. So I did that for a really long time. Did that influence your music at all? Dreams in the Rat House? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure in so many ways it has. So this mental institution for the criminally insane, it's like the roots go deep into my family because my grandfather, he was like a fire chief in, of the city of San Francisco. And then he broke his back flipping a fire truck and he got moved to like chiller duty in Napa because it's just like rural mm -hmm. country. But he was the fire chief of the mental institution, which there's a lot of fires at those things. Mm -hmm. So he was the fire chief and my grandmother was in charge of food service and they were given a little house because it's like a, the hospital is almost like a mini town. So they had like the barber and the shoe shine and the key master and the, you know, it was like a grocery store, which is what I worked in. But so my mother grew up on the property and that was before it was an institution for the criminally insane. It was just mental health facility. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, you could encounter any number of characters as a six year old on your bike, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I like definitely grew up in that world uh, like, cause she started working there when she was 15 mm -hmm. and I ended up working there when I was 18 and, uh, she would take me to work all the time. And, uh, she went off duty to, you know, rear children for a while, but then she still had a part-time job at a, not a halfway home, but at home, like a transitional facility from the mental institution to the next step. I didn't do well at daycare. So she just take me there <laughs> and I just hang out you know, with everybody. And I think that growing up around people who aren't considered normal, I got the special opportunity to just encounter a variety of ways of looking at the world and a variety of ways of looking at life and living your life. And so I think that that made me open up in mm -hmm. some other ways. So... When y'all first started, were you all like booking your own shows and like booking your own tours oh, yeah. and everything? Just like oh, lots yeah. of emails? Forever. And, uh, yeah. MySpace. That was like <laughs> how I connected to all bands back then. Still friends with a yeah. lot of people from those days too. But that's how I would book whole mm. entire tours that way. Did you did you ever play the uh, New Brunswick basement scene in New Jersey by Rutgers? We've never played... That we played the Bruce Springsteen's hometown oh, bowling the alley. Is it? Oh, it might be Asbury. Asbury Lanes. Park Lanes. Yeah. yeah, played yeah. there, and I've played um, Jersey City. Yeah. Would y'all still play like a house show today? Are you like over that? Are you okay. happy to be Look, out? I'm down, <laughs> and Nate's down, and Will's down. Cody's not as down. And the reality is, I like want to be like tough, you know punk forever. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, now I do get really overwhelmed if I have no escape, if I have nowhere where I can be alone for a little bit. Now I have to warm up my voice every day, sometimes mm -hmm. twice a day. Like I'll warm up twice tonight because I used to lose my voice constantly because it's like, I'm at a house party, I'm drinking booze probably <laughs> and no water. Yeah. And there's cigarette smoke everywhere. I'm talking really loud over people you know, and then I'm singing as hard as I can and then I'm not getting enough sleep and then that's mm -hmm. the next day. So it's like I lose my voice constantly. So now it's like I'm I'm more mature 
And I'm like, I got to take care of myself a little bit, you know? We, uh, so we heard there was a huge scene in in New Brunswick and we tried asking around, which never, no one likes it when someone's like, hey, where are the shows at? Because they're like, you're a cop. Maybe it's (laughs) because you say you're from New York. (laughs) Well, we say, we say we're from Jersey to all the people in Jersey, but also, (laughs) um, but yeah, so we started our own venue at my friend's house. Who's going? Cool. To, he's going to Rutgers, and uh, we had like five really good shows there. And we like packed the basement out. And the last show, we had a uh, just someone started wandering around the house, and they went up to the attic. And one of the kids there had a paintball gun. <gasps> and the person that was just wandering around the house, uh, they thought they were like planning a mass shooting, so they called the cops. That's so crazy. And the next day, the SWAT team came. No. Yeah, and they tied oh uh, like all the God. kids that lived in the house. They like lined them up, knees on the ground, and like put like tied their hands behind their back. Holy so, shit! Yeah. <laughs> and then so we lost that spot. And then we tried oh, playing no. this show. It was it was just a different New Brunswick house, and uh, there were like three bands before us. We were finally going on at eleven. And then the cops came and that got shut down. That was like our homecoming show after our tour too. Oh, so, man. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying very hard for to get into the DIY scene in Jersey. And it, it was kind of successful at first and then the cops got involved. Oh, so you're <laughs> coming from a different scene and you're going into DIY. Or that's well, what you want. We kind of we skipped a few steps in the beginning How? because we put our music up on Spotify. And it, the band at the time was just me and the guitarist Ross and... We just wanted it for our friends to listen to because it was the summer before we were going to college. We just started playing music together and said we had a band. And uh, we released our EP just for our friends and our family. And then our manager, Tyler, he wasn't at the time. He lived in Flagstaff, Arizona. The cover art I made on MS Paint, it took like 30 minutes. It was like (laughs) a banana screaming. Um, And he thought it was so dumb. He, He was just browsing through Spotify one day and it was like maybe a week after its release and he listened to it and then he was like, oh wait, this isn't as silly as the cover art. So he had a friend like interning at Spotify in the Fresh Finds department and we, he sent the music to him and then we got on Fresh Finds and then like one day I was just at school and I looked on Spotify and we jumped like 30,000 streams overnight. I was like, this is, this is crazy. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we made Lucky. it. And then, um, yeah, then I was like, okay, I got to quit school and like Ross quit school and then Wait, I did too. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then we were like, and then we were like, oh, what do we do now? Like, and then our Spotify numbers slowly started decreasing, and we're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. yeah. Um, so we we're like, oh, we have to play shows, and then we tried reaching out to venues, and they're like, they're like, yeah, you don't really have much of a following, and we're like, ah. Oh. So then we went back to DIY. So oh, that's how we started doing that. So yeah, uh, on our last tour, we played a bunch of really awesome houses in Atlanta. There was a place called like the Casanova. They had an entire bar. They had like a popcorn maker. Someone bought Ooh. us a cake. It had like our name so on cool. it. Yeah, there's some really nice houses. But yeah, the DIY scene has been like really, really nice to us. Um, but I think our, our last show was in Philadelphia. It was just in a basement. It was just like 200 degrees in there or something. Everyone was dying. I couldn't hold my bow because like my hands were so sweaty. And, yeah. Like, it was and, like everyone was just packed like sardines. So we're looking to get out of it. But... <laughs> But honestly, there's, there's like no energy like playing in a basement. Like it just feels like it's the peak of life or something. Yeah, you know? and I, I think like as soon as you're feeling so hot and sweaty and miserable, and you're like, <laughs> I think I might die. It's like you look at everyone in the crowd and they're smiling and they can't believe they're there and they're having the best time and they're they might be more sweaty because they're touching so many other people. Mm-hmm. And and then yeah, then I feel like I get this like. 
mm-hmm. this mutual high. Yeah, what counts as like a successful show to you? Like if there were like five people there and they were just having a blast, like that to me is like, it just feels so good, you know? And it's never, I mean, so far hasn't been about like trying to like sell out rooms or something like that. It's always just been like trying to give people like a really fun time. Yeah, I think as long as there's like that really powerful exchange, you know, to me, playing is an exchange. It's like, you Mm -hmm. know, you're giving each other something, Mm -hmm. something valuable. So as long as that happens and it feels really good and people are enjoying it, it's like, have you toured Europe yet? No. (laughs) That's a wide variety of uh, reactions, you know, Mm -hmm. like generally people at our shows dance and they sing along and they are in celebration mode, which I am forever grateful. I don't know how we've pulled that off, but that's like, that's what I want. That feels so good. Seeing people feel good, I think. But then you will play some, I mean, maybe sometimes in the city or in the States we encounter that, but in Europe, you'll play somewhere where people are like 10,000%, like crazier. Like in Poland, we played in Warsaw, actually, with this other band of mine called Hunks and His Punks. People were literally climbing up the walls. <laughs> that I'm not, they really were, and it was scary, and it was cool. And then someone wasted was talking to me after the show, and they had a little tiny, weird little rolled-up cigarette. They had their arm around me. And it was just like burning into my neck, but it hurt so bad I couldn't talk. So I had to karate chop his hand. So he'd, anyway, <laughs> then I had like a weird black hole. And then you go to the Netherlands and it's like the shows are sold out almost mm-hmm. every time we play there and people don't move. And it's really like, it's just a cultural difference. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, they're there because they want to see you. This is how they're celebrating. Yeah. This is how they're enjoying and having the best <laughs> night is by holding very still and staring at you, almost like I try really hard to not like uh, inject my feelings into everything, but it's hard. I'm just like full of feelings. But um, I'm like, okay, they don't hate me because they paid to be in here Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of them. They are just staring. So I was like, I'm going to pretend like we're a beautiful piece of art in the Whitney and they're just taking it in and that's Mm -hmm. how they're enjoying their night. Are there are there any performers you like to emulate while you're on stage? That's a great idea. You know, I think that that would be a good idea for me to do or like study someone. Mm. I don't ever do that as in my movement performance in front of people. Mm-hmm. Maybe vocally. I think karaoke actually helped me become a singer. Because mm-hmm. in karaoke, you can kind of like be someone else. Yeah. You know, you can kind of like, disappear for a minute and pretend to be Roy Orbison or whatever. So I feel like, at least for me, it gives me more more of a chance to try some weird shit out that like I'm, I could do in my car, I guess. But it's mm-hmm. different singing loud in an open room through a microphone. You know, I think that that helps me become a, a better singer. So in that sense, you know, Roy Orbison or he's yeah. who I always talk about. So you said you <laughs> taught yourself how to sing. What made you like want to start like songwriting out from being just like an illustrator, as you were saying? Well, since I was a little kid, I realized that I'm realizing now that whenever I'd get really angry or super sad or, you know, get sent to my room or whatever, the first thing I would do is like find a piece of paper and draw a really mean drawing. There was a, a big series of me like beating up my brothers like in a karate gi. Mm-hmm. And I'd like hide those drawings under my bed and they would find them. And, uh, or if I was sad, I would draw these like galloping stallions and my brothers would find them and draw like 
poops coming out <laughs> of you know just like ah! yeah. I have a lot of brothers. How many? Well, three, but sort of four. Uh, okay. It's a long story. Are there any of them musical at all? Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My. Uh, Eldest brother, Jason, plays guitar. My brother, Dan, is an amazing guitar player. He plays in this great punk band called Violence Creeps. My little brother is a really badass bass player. He he always played upright bass, and he plays electric, and he plays guitar. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and my- they're both secretly good singers, but they, like, don't want anyone to hear their voice. <laughs> I want to be like, just do it. It's, yeah, because it's like to sing, you have to, like, really just go all out, you know? Like, you can't, like, whisper or, like, false out of No, it'll but, sound stupid. <laughs> yeah. my, my sister, she's, like, she's a great classical pianist, and so is my, my brother, too. And that was the reason why I started playing cello, was just because, like, I wanted to be like them. And they're, they're, like, six and two years older than me, so, like, being the youngest child, I was like, I never want to, like, be the dud. <laughs> so, like, oh. I had to... <laughs> so, I t- yeah, I took up classical cello when I was, like, eight or something, and then... So I, I did go to school for it two years ago, and mm. then yeah, then I quit. Obviously, do this. So is this your full time job? Yeah, it's my full time job. Well, I got my first job working at like a twenty four seven diner this summer, and like that was like awful. I hated working overnights. Your but first job this summer? <laughs> it was like my first job. Well, I used to teach How cello, old are you? so oh. Oh, I'm twenty. So okay. I was teaching cello, but that was all like under the table. Mm. Hopefully, the IRS isn't listening. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so when I started going into like the rock and roll world, it was, like, crazy because I always just knew music as, like, something you, like, read and then play. And, like, everything is, like, you know, quantized and, like, everything's, like, written out. And then just on tour, like, we just met so many great musicians that, like, didn't know how to read music at all. And I don't even know. (laughs) I know what my four strings are called. (laughs) And uh, if I have an electronic tuner, I can tune it. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't know notes, chords, nothing. Yeah, I mean, that became apparent to me on this toilet. You don't, you don't need to know about any of that to make really good music. And we met this one group. It was like in North Carolina too. They're, they're called Grown Up Avenger Stuff. It was a, a dad and two of his sons. It was Whoa. so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they, they all had like Jesus-like beards. And they were just playing. The dad like, and the sons? Yeah. Oh, so they were adult sons. sons. Adult sons, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite city to play it? You know, I feel like if I spend enough time anywhere, I will love it. We spent two days in North Carolina between Carolina Beach and Wilmington and, you know, played two shows and I just fell in love with that area. Mm-hmm. And I'd been there before, but I, I think when you're shown like hospitality and you have activities and you really get to actually have enough time to see the city. Mm-hmm. I love Pittsburgh. That's a new one for me. I love Pittsburgh. I love, I mean, I honestly love so many different cities. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? I really like Salt Lake City. We, it was our like our first like West Coast tour. We did like nine shows and like no one knew who we were. We played Seattle to like five people and two of them were like, the, the guitarist mom and dad who flew out from oh, New Jersey. What? <laughs> and then like the, another so two nice. people were like just friends. And then, um, when we went to Salt Lake, that was like a Monday night, and we were like, "This is gonna be awful." Like the town Did you was play just at like Urban dead. Lounge. We played at uh, Kilby Court. Oh, that's the other. Yeah, and just like forty or fifty like Mormon kids came to the show, and like they like knew all the lyrics and stuff. So like that that's like cool. That was like the they show. They heard that, you like, on Spotify that time. Yeah, and they were like, "This is my favorite band." Yeah, that was that was a really. I really do fun think that Salt Lake. I'm ex Mormon, and I really think that. I love meeting Mormon fans and ex-Mormon fans and just, you know, in-betweens. 
you're really taught to be loving and supportive mm-hmm. and be really curious about people from all walks of life. Yeah. I think that's like the beginning nuggets they teach you when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. So I love going to Salt Lake because I kind of feel like, oh, I do come from a culture that's not just like, yeah, you know, I am part of a very I mean, strange culture. Mormons are making some of the best music today. Like the Killers, Brandon, Flower, Brandon Flowers, he was Mormon. The Killers are Mormon? I know Brandon Flowers was. And then there's interviews on YouTube of him like interviewing Dawkins. And like they're having, they're like debating evolution. And it's like, what, he's, why is he talking about this? Ooh, I don't um, want to do that. Brandon Yuri from Panic at the Disco. Really? All, yeah, he was grew up Mormon. Uh, Imagine Dragons, they're also Mormon. What? Yeah, I think that's the key. But now. are any of them current? <laughs> I don't know about that. I have hmm. to do some research. Interesting. <laughs> it was great talking with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, you too. <laughs> I hope our paths cross again someday. Oh, they will. <laughs> Big thanks to Shannon, Calvin, and Rough Trade. Thanks again to Lauren McGrath for curating today's talk. You can catch Shannon and the Clams out with the Black Keys right now. And if you're in the New Jersey, New York area, December 20th and 21st are the Happy Fits annual holiday shows in Bruce Springsteen's own Asbury Park, New Jersey. Annie, a couple names that got dropped in this talk have been on the show before. Shannon mentioned working with Tiny Telephone Studios. Well, the founder and owner of those studios is John Vanderslice, who was on our show live at South by Southwest earlier this year with Kevin Drew from Broken Social Scene. Yeah, and the Black Keys' Patrick Carney has been on the show with Carrie Brownstein. That was one of our earliest episodes. For more on the Oakland scene that Shannon talked about here, check out past episodes with Boots Riley, he of The Coup and Sar to Bother You, as well as Daveed Diggs of Hamilton and Clipping. There's some fun pictures from this live event on our socials. That's at TalkHouse across the board. This episode was recorded and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. The TalkHouse podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn. I'm Annie Fell. Peace. Bye. And viva rough trade. <laughs>